Good morning. Well, this morning we're going to do a few things. I'm going to talk just briefly about our trip to Mexico last week. I got to get these keys out of my pocket. They're stabbing me. You thought I was really passionate in my face. No, it was just my keys. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the trip last week to Mexico, to Las Amelia, just briefly, show some pictures, share a few things, and then we're going to finish the book of Nehemiah, and then we're going to talk about Palm Sunday, because this is Palm Sunday. So it's chock full today. You've come on a great day. Um, first of all, let me switch the projector. There it is. Good. We went to La Semilla, Mexico last weekend. Those of you uh, are aware, Danny shared, and he did a great job. Get up, lad. I heard the message, saw the videos. It was very encouraging. Uh, and about, I think it was 17 of us, but then we met others. I don't know how many altogether went to Mexico, but we went there, and the purpose of our trip was to help a church that is there called La Semilla. They're in, it's actually in La Gloria, I believe. And the church has built a wall and a foundation where they're on top of. And through the years, the, the pastor has been concerned because the block is starting to erode from the weather. And so he was concerned about all the work they've done, and now the block is going to erode. And so we went down there. We provided all the material that was there through the Lunch that we had a few weeks ago, we raised over $1,100 for the trip. Yeah, you can clap. Now, what's funny is not many of, not many of you stayed to eat, but you, enough of you stayed to pay, I guess. So hopefully next time you'll stay and enjoy the food as well. But it was a great opportunity for us to take that money we actually sent it on ahead so that they could buy the materials, and then we went down there as the laborers. It was kind of funny to see all these white people be day laborers in Mexico. <laughs> it was just the irony. We hung out at Home Depot for a while. No, I'm... <laughs> But we went down there to help. What we had to do, just so, as I go through the pictures, because the pictures will go pretty quick, what we had to do was take sand. We had to sift through two truckloads of sand. That was a lot of fun, right, Riley? Your arms are still sore. Sift through two truckloads of sand, then take three wheelbarrows full of sand and dump them on the concrete, mix three 50-pound bags of cement to the three wheelbarrows of sand, and then pour about 25 gallons of water and mix it all together to make it the plaster that we put on the wall. And we had to do that a million times, okay? Maybe I'm exaggerating, but it felt like a million times. We did it over and over and over again. And so here are some of the pictures of the event. I'll talk about them briefly as they take place. They should be taking place. Okay, let's try this. There it is. There's the trip that left from Upland. We had, again, about 16 or 17 of us. We picked up Aaron in San Diego, who's here. How come you're here, but we had to pick you up in San Diego? Anyway, <laughs> there's the sand that we had to sift through. That's us mixing the sand and the cement. That's us mixing the sand and cement. There's two piles that we had going on. That's my daughter. She's helping. Look at those gloves. Aww. Okay. <laughs> That's part of the wall. That's actually the north wall that we started to plaster again. As they're plastering, some are mixing, some are taking wheelbarrows down. We had to put two coats. There was the cover, the wall, and then we had to put the top coat. There's Dan. Yay, Dan. He's chipping the excess block off the wall. Aaron and Bree did the whole thing. We just left them, and they just went for it. That gives you an idea. This is now, I think, the west wall. That's one part of it. And now there's the north wall. It was huge, guys. It was huge. And we, that's the completed. We actually finished the entire thing. I know. We were amazed. They were amazed. We were exhausted. That's us eating, except my daughter picking bugs off of Riley's ear. Um, then we went down to a soccer field where we served some hot dogs and put on a, a little event there. 
I gave a riveting testimony to these three kids um, and the goats that were there on the field. We had some games for the kids. And then all those guys who were working on the building all day, they actually went and played soccer with another group for the rest of the night, uh, gave away some jerseys and things to the kids who were there. And then we went by a fire and warmed ourselves and talked and had a neat time. And then we went to a service that was in Spanish. Um, and then they had an English translator. And then we went and had tacos and lived happily ever after. And so that was our trip. And this is some of the other people that we met up with that we were down there. Now, I want to share briefly some things that happened just in our time that was there. Not only did we get to really minister to especially Javier, the pastor that was there, but we also got some ideas on some things that we can do. But before I go through that, Javier sent us a letter. And he speaks Spanish, and he had it translated. I think it's a Google translator, because some of it's like, huh? But I think you'll get the gist of it. I, I want to read this to you, because this is to the church here at Genesis. And he says, On behalf of those present, receive these greetings with a holy kiss, from the Church of Jesus in La Semilla, in Rosarito. Now, knowing how to, not knowing how to correspond for the support that you are providing us in the construction of the building, we know that the grace of God has overflowed in you. I love this line. Since your generosity shows the abundance of your pleasure. I love that. I don't know what he meant to say, but I like that. <laughs> this gives evidence that you have given yourselves to the Lord and then to us through the will of God. Thanks be given to our Lord for what you are doing for us. We know that it is a deed of grace. Thank you for being plentiful in this grace with us. Once again, this proves the sincerity of the love in your hearts, that my God and our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fills you with blessings. We know that this help has gone up as a pleasant scent in presence of God, and he never forgets what we do for him. The Lord Jesus fill you with, fill your lives with blessings, Pastor Javier. And I thought, how, how neat that he took the time. And so I just wanted to share with you guys, I mean, this is what we did in La Semilla, Mexico. You know, it's kind of funny. Our, our, our community here is always surprising me how you guys show up. And this is actually going to be our fifth Easter next week. We, we're four complete years as a community, and we, we've done some neat things in that four years, and I look forward to what God is going to continue to do. You know, we might not be able to afford a sink in our building, but we've got a wall in Mexico and some bathrooms in Haiti. Okay? I mean, so... <laughs> we're just going to build all over the world. Uh, while we were there, some things took place, and it was kind of interesting because I went to bed one night thinking about, you know, it was interesting when we did this event. We had a, a small group of people that were there. A guy named Obed did some music. I shared, the pastor Javier shared. We served a lot of hot dogs and chips and some punch and gave some jerseys away. But there were probably as many kids playing soccer as there were up on the field. And I was thinking... We should probably do something like that. I went to bed thinking that. At like four in the morning, Alex called me. It wasn't four in the morning. It just felt like four in the morning. Alex called me. He goes, hey, bro, sorry it's early. Hope I didn't wake you up, but my head's going to explode. And if you know Alex, that's just how he can be sometimes. And he goes, I've just been thinking, man. I've been thinking, you know, I want to do something like with soccer tournament or something there in La Semilla, Mexico. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. I was just kind of thinking that too. And so what we are looking to do, and I just throw this out for you guys to pray about it. We're going to talk about it in leadership uh, tomorrow and see maybe in the summertime is to go down back there. They have a huge soccer field and maybe put on a soccer tournament or a little clinic, something for the people, and I think we'll pack the place out. 
um, they're just there naturally. And if we can provide a means to connect with them in that way and not only do some things with them with soccer, but also, of course, do some things with this message of who Jesus is and bring that into the play. And so we're looking to go down there again. I uh, just want to let you guys know there so that so you can, if you play soccer, I know a few of you do, uh, you can plan on coming out. It's always fun when these, you know, kids from America come who've been on, you know, these soccer teams and they actually know how to play and they go and they show up and the kids are like, oh, wow, you guys, gringos know how to play soccer. I didn't know, you know. And it's like, yeah, surprise. Um, and it, it really connects. I mean, there's so much that takes place at that time. And so we're looking to do that again uh, just to keep that in mind. Uh, thank you guys for contributing for being a part of that. Thanks to all, I mean, you have no idea how hard this group worked. From eight till three, they just worked on that wall relentlessly. We did eat some burritos in between to give us some energy, but everyone was amazed at how much was accomplished. I mean, it really was incredible to stand back and go, we're gonna finish, oh my gosh. Because when it started, I thought, this ain't gonna happen, we're gonna get, you know. Half a wall. Thank you. You know, that's what we, we actually did a lot, and it was a great time. Javier was very moved when we were sitting by the fire. He was speaking to us, and he was very moved uh, that we would come down and be a part of their community and help them that way. He was touched, and that's because of you guys. So thank you. Okay, we're going to move on. Since we're talking about a wall, let's finish. <sighs> Nehemiah. See, I got a different wall up there this time. We're going to finish Nehemiah. Now, we left last time in chapter 10. Chapter 11 gives us a list of the families that moved back into Jerusalem and some of the positions that they held. Uh, chapter 12 gives us a list of all the priests and Levites, as well as a record of the dedication of the wall being completed, uh, a time that was filled with music, celebration, performing some rituals again to, to purify and dedicate the wall as well as reinstate some of the services at the temple. When we left in chapter 10, the last verse in chapter 10, verse 39, it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. We see that that was an important part of what was taking place, that they were not going to neglect the house of the Lord. In chapter 12, they dedicate the wall and these services. But chapter 13 doesn't end well. You know, if you were to script this out, this is not how you would end the story. It doesn't end happily ever after. It actually is kind of depressing. And we're going to kind of go through this a little bit and talk about what happens and try and gain some insights in what we can do to not allow these things to happen to us. I want to start in verse 4 of chapter 13, where he says before this, and he's talking about before they did all the assembling together, uh, they read the book of the law, and before all this took place, Elashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storeroom of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. When you hear the name Tobiah, there should be bad guy music playing, right? Dun, 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 dun. It's Tobiah. You remember him from the earlier chapters. He was in opposition. Well, we see that Elisha, the priest, was associated with Tobiah. Verse 5, it says, And he provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple artifacts. Or articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So here is a room that is supposed to be for these things dedicated to God, the offerings with the grain, the new wine. And Tobiah, the guy who is in opposition, is now living there. He has room there in this place because he's in association with the priest there, Eliashib. And so he goes on and he says, 
But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Alexerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked the for permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elishab had done and providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. We're going to find out what greatly displeased means to Nehemiah because it might mean a little bit more than it sounds like. I gave orders. I was greatly displeased and threw out all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into the, into them the equipment of the house of God, which the grain offerings, with the grain offerings and the incense. So Nehemiah goes back. Remember in the beginning, he asked permission from Artaxerxes to, to come and to, to be a part of this building. He was granted permission. He was given supplies. He was given God's blessing through this king. And as he goes there and he does this work, he had to go back and fulfill his promise. I'll be back. He went back and he says, hey, can I leave again? Go see how things are going. He goes back. And so a period of time has taken place. But remember, in chapter 10, we will not neglect the house of our God. He comes back and there's this snake living in the storeroom of the house of God. All the things, the supplies, where are they? They're not there, but Tobiah and his stuff is. What happened? What What's taking place here? Because remember, chapter 10, they all signed and agreed and vowed and promised that they were going to dedicate themselves, their, their offerings, their grain, their new wine, their shekels to God and to maintain the house of God. Worship was going to be paramount in their lives. It was going to be central they were going to put away the idolatry and stop breaking the Sabbath and stop intermingling with the, the foreigners and having their daughters marry them. And we talked about the beliefs that were involved with that. What happened? Verse 10, it gets worse. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Last time I left, you weren't going to neglect the house of God. Then I, recalled them to, I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of this other guy, there as assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. And so what they said they weren't going to neglect, they were now neglected. And it's interesting, it's in verse 14, and this takes place a few times in this chapter. Nehemiah says, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its servants. He goes on in verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading winepress on the Sabbath. They weren't going to do this. This was the whole reason Israel was taken captive is because they were neglecting the law of God. So he saw them treading the wine press on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And, there, and they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? And he goes on, he says, don't you remember what happened to our ancestors? Don't you remember? It was just 
recently that you promised not to do this. You gave your word this wasn't going to happen. Go with me to verse 23. Actually, in verse 22, it says, I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Again, Nehemiah says, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Verse 23, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and the other language, the other children spoke the lang- or the, of the language... Excuse me, let me try this again. Verse 24. Half... <laughs> of the children spoke the language of Ashad or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them, called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. He showed displeasure. Um, what's interesting is Ezra in the book before when, when these kinds of things were happening, he beat his breast and pulled out his hair. Nehemiah said, nuh-uh. Uh, I'm not going to pull out my hair. I'm going to pull out your hair. And so he does these things. He rebukes them. He calls cursings down there. He beats them, pulls out their hair. And he made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons and for yourselves. Was it not because of marriage like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of our sons of Jodah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat, the Hornite, remember him, another bad guy, and I drove him away from me. Once again, he says, remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. So I purified the priest and the Levites of every foreign, everything foreign and assigned them Duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contribution of wood, designated times, and for the first fruits. And he ends with, remember me with favor, my God. Once again, in one of the areas that they had promised, they went back. And Nehemiah says, don't you remember Solomon, who was the wisest, fell because of this compromise, do you really think you're not going to? And as we see all this, and we ask ourselves, why is this happening? How can they make promises and so easily break them? How can they sign an agreement with God, stand up and say, amen, amen, we're not going to neglect the house of God, and in such a short time, neglect the things that they promised not to? And I think to answer that, we don't have to look at them. We can look at ourselves. We can look in the areas of our own lives and maybe we have made those promises. I promise I'm never going to drink again. How many people have ever made that promise? And there you find yourself sick, maybe worse, behind bars, in trouble. Married in, in Las Vegas. I don't know. <laughs> you find yourself in this place and go, oh my goodness. What have I done? You, you swore that you would never do that again. Or maybe you said, I, I'm never going to date these kind of guys again. I'm never going to do this. I've been used and and brokenhearted for the last time. I'm never going to do that again. And you find yourself in that place again. I'm never going to act this way. We have high expectations of what we will never do when those times come, but we find ourselves falling again into those very things that we swore we would never do. 
And I think of Jesus' words to the disciples when they were falling asleep and he asked them to watch and pray. And he said, the flesh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we are given to our weakness if we're not aware of it. And I think one of the key lessons in the book of Nehemiah is for us to take is that the building never stops. The building of our lives never stops. There is always work to be done. And the minute we stop and think, I'm good, I don't need to worry about it, is the minute we find ourselves in jeopardy is the minute we find ourselves on that slope falling backwards and we find ourselves again in a place where we say, how did I get here? What happened? Why am I in this place? And we have to recognize that we can't take a break from being vigilant in our lives. We can't relax and think everything is fine I know, that sounds like, well, that sounds like a drag, don't we? It's not that we can't enjoy life. It's we have to always be moving forward in it. There is a quote by C.S. Lewis that came to mind. And I think it's enlightening so that it doesn't seem so dreadful. And it gives kind of insight. It says, the settled happiness and security, which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment he has scattered broadcast. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It is not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and oppose an obstacle to return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath, a football match have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Your life is a journey. There is a destination for all of us. And the destination isn't here. The destination is the kingdom of God. It is the heart of God, the will of God. That is our destination. And the minute we stop living for that and start living for ourselves in some other way, we find ourselves in the same place as the people in Jerusalem. Oh, we might have made strides. Oh, I used to be this. Oh, we were living outside the wall. Oh, I used to, you know, be a real bad party. I used to do this. But the minute you stop recognizing that there is work to be done, I have a purpose and a goal, and it's not just for myself, is the minute you start compromising and working on the Sabbath, is the minute that you stop doing the things that God desires for us to do because you get comfortable, you get lazy, and God becomes secondary. And what we desire becomes primary. And all of a sudden, you'll find yourself, and it happens to all of us. You believe in Jesus. You love the Lord. But you find yourself in a place. You wake up one morning, or you find yourself one night in this place, and you say, oh, my gosh, how did I get here? You didn't just jump into the fire. You just slowly let it develop. Your guard was down. Your focus has changed. What was supposed to be primary became secondary. And in a matter of time, you find your place and you've given away the storeroom to people that shouldn't be there, to things that shouldn't be there. And once again, there needs to be a time where it's purified. There has to be a cleansing in your own heart because this journey is not done until it's done. Paul said it this way. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You see, Paul is saying, I have run a race and I have longed for his appearing. I have lived for a purpose. And it was a race, it was a fight, and I've completed it. This is taking place when he's in prison before he's going to be put to death, writing to Timothy. And Paul continued, was vigilant, had focused, and moved his life consistently in that way. It doesn't mean that he didn't stumble, didn't have problems. It doesn't mean that he didn't enjoy life. Didn't mean that he didn't laugh, he didn't sing, he didn't have a great time with friends. Doesn't mean you have to stop any of those things. His focus maintained true to that calling that God had placed on him, that God has placed on all of us. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, honor God in your bodies, which belong to him. You see, They had neglected the storeroom, the temple. What we neglect is the temple, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we don't allow God to be primary in our lives. And what does that mean? How how does God take this place in our lives? Does it mean I have to go to church more? Well, that's not the purpose. What it means is, You have to allow God influence in you. You see, I believe that God has created everyone here so unique, has gifted each of you in ways that you have no idea what God could do in you. He's created every one of us unique and special ways to have an impact in the world around us in a variety of ways. And and we limit what those ways are. We think those ways are the things that take place at church. Well, I don't really sing, so I don't want to be a singer. We don't want you to be a singer. (laughs) But you have other abilities. Some of you are very compassionate, caring. Some of you are very artistic. Some of you are are very keen and wise and administrative abilities. It, It varies. Some of you are amazing with children. Some of you are amazing with adults older adults who are kind of like children. There is so much possibility. But if God is not in that conversation with you, a lot of those abilities get taken out and the storeroom gets filled with other things. And so instead of living your life as full as it could be and as useful as it could be, it starts becoming useless. And the idea of a useful life, the idea of a life that is giving, is just that. We are not here just for ourselves. We are here for others. One of the things when we were down in Mexico and we had our little time around that fire, we were talking and I was just thinking how so many times there are moments in our lives things that happen to us that impact our lives in a negative way, decisions we made that cost us, and they leave this mark in our life. You know, that time you were foolish, you were drinking, and you got behind the wheel, and you got a DUI. That relationship you got involved with, and it led to some things, and now maybe you're a single mom, but you don't have a father for your child. Those things that happen and you think back and you go, man, I 
made a bad decision on that day and it cost me something and and you feel like it's always there. Well, I believe the same thing can happen in the reverse. I believe that there are things that we can do that can leave a mark on our life in the trajectory of our lives that'll take us from focusing this way and send us on this way just because we took that one time and maybe went to the Foothill Family Shelter, got involved, and all of a sudden our whole attitude changed and our whole disposition changed and we started doing things that we wouldn't normally have done and it all happened in a moment where you stepped into something that was good for others and it marked your soul for a good thing in a good way. The things you did made a difference not only in those around you, but in you. And when we involve ourselves with the care of others, doing the things that God would have us to do, being obedient in the gifts and callings that God gives to us, it changes our direction in a good way. And so one of the lessons I believe in Nehemiah is that we would see that we can change the direction of our lives, but we have to be diligent. We have to keep building. We can't relax and put our guard down. If we're not moving forward, we're falling backwards. Many times what we think God wants, or maybe it should put it this way, maybe, maybe the things that we want from God aren't really the things God wants for us. Sometimes what needs to change is our perspective and how we're seeing things. And that's how I was reminded of Palm Sunday. Because Palm Sunday is this incredible day before the cross, before the resurrection, when there's this celebration, this prophesied event that the Messiah was going to come into Jerusalem. And and let's go there in Matthew chapter 21. Verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord has needs, the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this is one of those interesting moments. It's an interesting moment because what's happening here and how it's taking place, everything that's going on is fulfilling prophecy and is something that needs to happen. The worship of Jesus that's taking place here is what needs to be taking place. But... Why it's taking place and the reason the people are doing these things, even though it's the right thing to do, they're doing it for the wrong reason. You see, their idea of what's taking place isn't what's really taking place. They're saying, yes, Jesus is here. He's going to deliver me. He's going to deliver us. The son of David, that's, that's a term 
that's specific for the Messiah. He's here, and their idea of what that meant was not what was happening. In fact, if they actually knew what was going to be happening, they probably wouldn't be there because later on, when it started to happen, their disappointment came and they left. And you see, sometimes I think we have an idea, this is what I want God to do for my life. I want it to go this way. This is what I want, but what we really need is something different. And what, what we need starts to happen, we get disappointed. We started off believing, thinking this is great, but when it doesn't go the way we want it to, like the multitude here, like those back in Nehemiah's time, well, this is kind of hard, we back out of it. Because what we really need isn't always what we really want. And, and we have this idea, and it happens so many times, that we want Jesus to make our life easy. I thought for sure God wanted me to win that $600 million. <laughs> Why wouldn't he? I would have given a tithe. <laughs> Thank you. And what we desire isn't necessarily what's happening. And what they were wanting to see take place was not really what was taking place. And what they were celebrating, even though it was true, it was almost like it was true by accident. Yes, he is the Messiah, but he's not what you were expecting. So what are you going to do now when life isn't what you were expecting? When God doesn't show up the way you wanted him to show up? And it's amazing. We all do this. We all want God to, to be a certain way for us. We all want him to... to cater to us. I wrote about this recently and I talked about how we all want a Jesus that looks like me. When I went to Haiti and there was that mural on the wall and Jesus had black skin. And you think, well, that's weird. Yeah, and then you come over here and Jesus has white skin. That's just as weird. Okay, he was born of a little Jewish woman in the first century. He didn't have blue eyes most likely didn't have blonde hair or light brown hair. But we want Jesus to look like us. And, and I understand the reason, because we want someone who we can identify with, someone who understands us. I, I understand that, because he did become man to do that. But then we go a little bit further. We want him to want the things that we want. We want him to cater to us and our likes. And so now the way we see the world is the way we want God to see the world. And when he doesn't see it our way, we get bent out of shape. We give up. We quit. It's funny how quickly the celebration turned into disappointment and abandonment. And I think God is a lot less of what we want him to be, but he is what we need him to be. And what we need is deliverance. What we need is forgiveness. What we need is to be corrected, reproved, instructed, forgiven. What we want is entitlement, comfort, pleasure. And we find ourselves battling with this to go in to what's easy, to what's comfortable, or to give in to what is necessary and what is needed for us. And we need to be careful that we don't make this message of who Jesus is something that is not really what is taking place. As this celebration is going on, it's ironic that the people who were celebrating, who were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna to heaven in the highest, 
that those people were probably not as close to what was happening as those who were saying, who is this? That the ones who were questioning, who is this, were actually probably closer to the truth of what was happening than those who were celebrating. I think that's interesting. Because sometimes we can get so caught up in the celebration that we lose the meaning. We get out of touch with what's really taking place here. And that the celebration is taking place, but it is leading to death. It's leading to what would seemingly be defeat. Only God can put celebration before defeat. Because he knows that then after that will be victory. Only God can do that, but he does that all the time. And sometimes we have to recognize that the celebration is actually leading to a death. The death of our own desires, our own will, our own wants. That if you want to celebrate, you can, but recognize where it's taking you. Because this celebration was taking Jesus to the cross, to Friday. Palm Sunday, the recognition of the Messiah was not taking them where they wanted to go, but it was taking them where they needed to go. And Jesus may not take you where you want to go, but he will take you where you need to go. And if what you need and what you want are different, you have to decide what needs to change. But I want, I want this Jesus who is friendly and nice and meets my needs and, you know, I, I want there to be just good things. Happy things. I want that Jesus who's smiling and has children in his arms. That's the Jesus I want. And we go to the Jesus in Revelation. That's a scary Jesus. He's got a white robe that's dripping in blood and fire is coming out of his eyes and swords out of his mouth and he's got a tattoo on his thigh and we're like, oh man, I wasn't expecting that Jesus. Oops. But you know what? That's the Jesus we need sometimes. And we need to be careful that we don't put what we want before what we need. That we recognize that what Jesus has come to do required death. And it's going to require a death for us as well. Palm Sunday is moving towards Good Friday before we can ever get to Easter. Someone has to deliver us from our sin, has to pay our debt so that we can truly celebrate. There is an important progression from Palm Sunday to Easter and it might be found in that question, who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is he to you? Is he the Messiah that you were waiting for? That you wanted? Or is he the Messiah that you need? Next week as we talk about Easter, we're going to get to see the victory. But don't celebrate the wrong things. Celebrate the truth of who he is, what he's done, and what it requires of each of us. Because he didn't come to allow us to do our own thing. The walls of Jerusalem weren't built so that you could go back to the way you were living. God still required us to be dedicated to him. He still requires us to live for him. The Jesus that we want and the Jesus that we need need to be understood so that we worship who he really is and allow him to be who he needs to be in our lives. Let's pray. Father, as we talk about Palm Sunday, I, I know it's it was kind of a... a small portion of just what we spoke on today, but Lord, throughout your story, there is always this leaning to 
what we want as opposed to what we need. There is the necessity to recognize who you really are and to give you the place that you need to have in each of our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would always be mindful of this, that this life that we're living is a race, that it is a fight, that it is something we cannot stop engaging ourselves in. We can't stop building. But Lord, for us to build this life, we need to be equipped with the things you equip us with. And Lord, so many of us are working with the wrong tools. We're we're living without power. We're moving forward without joy. We, We don't have love. We are living this life with duty. Lord, help us to see that what we need is really a reason for us to rejoice. That even though there is a cross, there is more beyond it. Even though there is a death to ourselves, there is a resurrection in our life. Even though there are things that have marked us and have hurt us in the past, there are things that can mark us for good in the future. And if we would just yield ourselves to you and how you've created us, what you've created us, if we would seek you and what you desire for our lives and we would want what you want for us and not just what we want for ourselves, that we might find that there is a new life that takes place, that emerges from us, that gives us purpose, direction, joy, in the midst of the fight, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the race, we're able to continue on because we know who you are and we know that you are what we need. Lord, I pray you'd bless everyone here this morning, that you would encourage them, Father, that you would give them visions of what their lives can be as they yield to you, that they would not see this life as a burden, as less than, but they would see it as greater than what they are now and what they can imagine. But to get there, to get to this life that you have, there is sacrifice. As we celebrate what we can be, we recognize that between us and that life, there is a cross that we need to bear. We need to pick up and follow you daily. May we pick up our crosses. May we follow after you. May you be what we need and not just what we want. We thank you that you are all that and more. Lord, empower us to live fully for you, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.